I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor, as as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the Emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of of unjust suffering, because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, and called him her Lord, You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Thank you very much, Maid. Long passage, there's lots in there. Um, Especially that last bit is countercultural, but pretty much all of it is, isn't it? just so that you're not sort of champing at a bit, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that last bit, um, mainly because I don't think it's the, the main point of the passage, it's a big passage, um, so, uh, but we will get there. Um, I wonder in your conversations about uh, how you're, you're um, uh, sort of tempted to compromise and just fit in in uh, different situations, whether you feel a little bit like this policeman that's um, someone called Sir David McKee, the former commissioner of uh, the Metropolitan Police, talked about in a speech he gave once. 
um, when he was referring to a police exam paper for trainee officers. And one of the key questions, the key question in this exam paper, asked them to write down what action they would take in a particular crisis. I don't know if you've heard this before. But the crisis was this. You're on patrol when an explosion occurs on the next door street. As you arrive, you note that a crowd of people are running about, flailing their hands in the air and screaming. Upon further investigation, you find a large hole and an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there is a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You know he is an unlicensed driver and his passenger is the wife of your inspector. A motorist stops to offer assistance, but you recognise him as a felon wanted for armed robbery. (laughs) Suddenly, another man runs out of a nearby house shouting that his wife is expecting a baby and that the shock of the explosion has brought the birth imminent. At that moment, you hear someone crying for help because you discover they've been blown into an adjacent canal by the explosion and he cannot swim. Describe, in a few words, what you would do. (laughs) So David McKee said that one of his bright young officers gave the problem some careful thought before picking up his pen and writing, I would change out of my uniform and mingle unobtrusively with the crowd. (laughs) Now... I don't know if that's a true story, but for Christians under pressure in this world, that is definitely a true story. If our uniform is self-sacrificial love, speaking up for the gospel, explaining what a different identity we have, confessing our sins, but showing that the Lord Jesus Christ ministers to that, how he's transformed us, how he's made us to live a good life, to, to live that out in the workplace, among friends, and so on and so on. If that is our uniform that makes us distinct... All the time we're taking it off and just mingling unobtrusively with the crowd. Well, so far we've seen in 1 Peter that the theme is this, and you've got on your sheets, you can fill in the gaps, that adds a little bit of fun and spice to uh, the whole thing and keeps you, uh, uh, keeps you concentrating. Um, from holy, and we've seen that the word holy doesn't mean um, uh, well-behaved, it means radically different. God is holy. And he's not just holy because he's well-behaved. He's holy because he is amazingly distinct. And actually some of what John showed us in the psalm we read shows how uh, that, that God is just so different to us. And yet he's given us a holy identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're somehow united with him and given that perfect status so that we can know him and be in relationship with him. We have been, we have been given a radically different identity from those who were apart from God to those who know him and trust in him. And that should lead to holy action, radically different action. And uh, then last week, we, um, we looked a little bit at these first two verses on our sheet, verse 11 and 12. And um, we saw um, uh, last week, actually, about... Uh, no, we haven't put it there. Um, we saw last week, firstly, that we, our identity is that we are um, heaven on earth. We are the dwelling place of God. I think we do have that, actually. Yeah. Um, you are heaven and earth, yeah. So that's there. Um, and it's summarised there in, um, it's alluded to there in, in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Um, but that just picks up from the theme, which was amazing last week, that we saw we are like the temple of God on earth. We are living stones of the temple because we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the great cornerstone, and we're being shaped together and bits being cut off us and put together so that we would be the very dwelling place of God on earth and a picture of his glory to a watching world. 
Um, it's an extraordinary privilege, our identity. And Peter says here in, um, in verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, the fact that you are God's dwelling place on earth, the fact that you are his temple here, the fact that you are living stones being built into the spiritual house or the house dwelt in by the Holy Spirit, that fact makes you very different here. That makes you foreigners and exiles. And that should lead to action. Well, let's uh, dive into verse 11 and look at our identity. What does it mean to be foreigners and exiles as those who are heaven on earth, God's dwelling place on earth? Well, foreigners, is, it's obvious. We're not citizens of this world. This is not our home. This is not uh, where we belong. Um, this is not our um, status, our identity, our citizenship are not here. As we were thinking about, as we were praying about, um, as Anais was wonderfully praying about, um, we have a future reality. Uh, we have a, our, our home is with the Lord in heaven, uh, to be brought together when heaven and earth come together in the new creation. And we have a different legal status. Before God, we are citizens of his, his nation. We are his children. We are in his family. And so we, this is not our home. We are distinct here. We shouldn't feel comfortable here. And all the more so as exiles or strangers. Um, the term just means those who are passing through. We're on a journey. We're not stopping here. As we thought about a while back, you, know, you can debate as to whether... Um, you should go first class or economy class if you have the money. But if you were travelling and you focused all your attention on the size of your seat, whether you had one metre squared in economy or two metres squared in first class, it'd just be ridiculous because you're just on a journey, you're passing through. And our comfort here and our, our status here and um, the way that we live here should be as those who are exiles or strangers or those who are just passing through, away from home, looking forward to a more wonderful future. And you know, if you live out that identity as being exiles, as being strangers, you will be more useful here. But what we'll discover is that people here won't understand you. There will be conflict. But the truth is, as we'll see, the more... You know, have you ever heard the phrase, don't be too heavenly-minded, otherwise you'll be no earthly good? Well, hopefully, one Peter has started to get rid of that idea. Because the more heavenly minded you are, the more attention you pay to the God who is in heaven and that's where your status is, the more heavenly minded you are, the more use you will be here on earth. The more use you will be here on earth. That doesn't mean withdraw, it means get involved as we'll see. I heard a little illustration of, imagine pristine football boots. And imagine someone saying, well the last thing I'm going to do with those is get them dirty in the mud. They've completely missed the point. The more they understand their purpose as football boots the more they want to get immersed in the mud in the right way. And so we need to be doing that. The more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you'll be. And so that leads to action. And that action is there in verses 11 and 12, so that you can bring earth to heaven. Let me read uh, from the second half of verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that is, those who don't believe, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I've just put two little points there. Fight the urge to conform and live a life to transform. First there is the second half of verse 11. 
Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You have been shown mercy. You have been born again, as we were seeing last week, to live a life of freedom. And the same pressures, the same desires are there to do what you did before you were a believer. To live like just anyone else, to mingle with the crowd. But those can be defeated by the greater desires of living a transformed life. A life uh, of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ who says he has come that you may have life to the full. That greater desire can defeat the desire to conform which wages war against your soul. And you need to be aware that there's a battle on. Um, as Hope was encouraging us to um, a couple of months ago. Every day we should wake up and say, Lord, remind me that there's a battle on, there's a war on, so that um, uh, I can fight with your weaponry rather than with my own. Because if we, if we go to war against all the desires that are coming to us with our own strength, well, it's like going with little toy guns to a battlefield. And then live a life to transform. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And the key thing I think I want us to see here is, is see your good deeds. But then, so, so we've got to be visible, we've got to be out there, we've got to be among people, we've got to have those football boots that are getting dirty in the mud. We've got to be actively out there, not withdrawing as if our different status gives us the right to behave like monks or live in our own little cosy communities. No, we've got to be out there. But then the question is, what kind of lives are to be seen? Well, firstly, they should be lives that are blatant about your identity. Because you're never going to get anyone accusing you of doing wrong as a Christian, saying, oh, you're a weirdo, so-and-so, oh, I bet you're doing the wrong thing, because they're antagonised by your faith, unless they know that your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're trusting him. Um, your, your lives need to be out there and blatant about your identity so much so that people will mock and accuse you of doing wrong. And we'll see that more and more, that actually those who put their trust in Christ will be treated as he was treated. But in terms of living out that good life, it should be a life that is marked first and foremost by servant-hearted submission. By servant-hearted Submission. And so the title, I suppose, for this, the whole, the rest of this sermon is Transformation by Submission. Um, which is a slightly odd thing, you'd think. You know, we've got this amazing identity. We're heaven on earth. We're citizens of heaven. We've got this extraordinary future. Why shouldn't we be revolutionaries, just changing the system, fighting, 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 pushing through? But yet, God's strategy for us living good lives that transform society is first and foremost, and Peter concentrates on it for the whole of the rest of this chapter into chapter 3, and actually that continues, is by submission. And in this, you'll have noticed that Peter concentrates on those with the least power. So these examples, he could have given lots of different examples, but first he gives the example of an anti-Christian nation and being subjects in that. Uh, subjects of an anti-Christian nation. And then he goes on to talk about slaves of an anti-Christian master. And then he gives an example of wives of an anti-Christian husband. Those who, especially in the society of the day, were the weakest of the weak. And you'd think he'd be saying, your different status liberates you to break through that. But instead he says, the extraordinary power is that of submission. 
And in case we think this is, well, this is just typical religion, isn't it? It's just controlling people. It's that opiate of the people, you know. Look forward to the future and just behave well now. In case we think it's that kind of controlling, we get to see right in the middle of this section, and I think it's in the middle there because in the sort of um, way they wrote at the time, if you put something in the middle, then that was the key emphasis. It was like the mountain peak. And Peter puts this example in the middle, and who is it? Well, it is the ultimate example of servant-hearted submission in verses 21 to 25. The slave who was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ who said of himself that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a slave, as a ransom for many. Total submission. And so what we're going to do, and we're going to spend most of our uh, time that's left in this section, uh, in uh, this section, verses 21 to 25, focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, so let's have a look at verse 21. So he's referring to the example of slaves and then citizens. Before that, were no subjects, really. They weren't citizens. Um, subjects, uh, then slaves. And he says, to this kind of suffering, this trial... This difficulty you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. It's so easy to forget, but if you read through the Gospels, if you read through the New Testament, if you read through yeah, the whole of the New Testament, again and again and again we hear that the Christian life is expected to involve suffering. It's supposed to be that way. To this you were called. That term you were called isn't just, doesn't mean, oh, specifically you slaves into that particular job were called. No, it's the term for being called to be a Christian. All Christians are called to suffer because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. But it's not pointless suffering. It's servant-hearted, submissive suffering for the purpose of transformation. And of course the example of the Lord Jesus' life gives us that better than anything else. The Christian life involves the experience of suffering. It's supposed to be that way. In in chapter 4, Peter says, don't be surprised at these trials that are afflicting you. And he says in this section that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his, his heading suffering and going to the cross, shapes should shape how we think and live. That is how we should think and live. This is the action mindset that we should have. And, but first and foremost, in verse 22, he says, he just reminds us that this wasn't Jesus' fault that he was suffering. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. But if you think of that idea of suffering, the idea of suffering against the, the fight against sin, uh, Jesus suffered more than any because he resisted to the point of death. At every point, he resisted sin. But doesn't it make you think, hang on a minute, this is a little bit unfair. If Jesus is the example of committing no sin or having no deceit found in his mouth, that's just not fair. Because he had a big head start, didn't he? Because he was God. (laughs) That helps, I think, in fighting sin. And um, I I read a very, very helpful book. I I won't go into too much detail now, but a book last year that just sort of totally blew my mind in this way. 
by a guy who had that thought as he came to this passage. This is totally unfair. The guy's called Bruce Ware, and he wrote a book called The Man, Christ Jesus. And in the book, he simply points out that Jesus was literally a man. And that the way he fought sin wasn't with his divine nature sort of zapping it like a superman. No, he lowered himself to the status of a human being. And he lived with exactly the same resources that you and I have. And yet was without sin. And the extraordinary liberating fact of that is that he is therefore our example, an example we can follow. And we have the same resources that he had. If you read through Luke's Gospel especially, Luke reminds us again and again, he did this by the power of the Spirit. He resisted temptation by the power of the Spirit. He went out by the power of the Spirit. He preached by the power of the Spirit. He even did miracles by the power of the Spirit. Jesus didn't, resolve, didn't draw on his own sort of superman resources. Jesus wasn't a superman. He was a man like us, who could represent us in every way. And so Peter's saying, you should follow Jesus' example in this. He's saying, just the same as Jesus. You have all the same resources as he had. And so that example, that's realistic. And then look at what he did, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Do you see the the link there with verse 12? Live such good lives among the pagans, among those who don't believe, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, people accuse Jesus, they hurled insults at him. But he didn't retaliate. No, instead they got to see the good deeds of he who entrusted himself to God, his Father, who judges justly. And that's a theme that's come up again and again in 1 Peter. The idea we don't need to fear people around us because we have God as our Heavenly Father who is the judge. And he sees clearly and we can entrust ourselves to him. They accused him of doing wrong, didn't they? But then many of those who accused him of doing wrong were converted. Instead of retaliating and fighting back and thinking this is unfair and trying to move away or just giving up, Jesus carried on until he did the one thing that of course we could never do. He paid for our sins. And he paid for the sins of those who would trust in him, even those who were insulting him hurling insults at him. We're told later on that many Pharisees came to believe and they were the biggest opponents of him. We're told that a centurion, even as Jesus died, one of the, the Roman soldiers, the chief Roman soldier who was in charge of his execution, the guy who ordered the nails to be hammered into his wrists, looked at his example and said, surely this man is the son of God. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Total transformation. Those who would hurl insults at him, who thought he was an irrelevance, or maybe just thought he was an important historical figure who, who just didn't deserve all their attention. He himself in his body, as he suffered there on the cross, took your sin. In his body. He suffered that pain and that torment. He didn't think, I'm just going to cave. No, he gave himself. And he gave himself so that it might be possible for us to live in right relationship with the God we were made to know. 
He was treated as we deserve, so that we could be treated as he deserves. He was wounded so that we could be healed for all eternity. That's extraordinary service, isn't it? That's extraordinary submission. Do we think of our suffering, the opposition that we face, the the fact that if we talk too much about Jesus and about the fact that our identity is in him and how he's just made the whole of life wonderful, even though it's difficult, really hard, but meaningful. If we talk about our relationship with him, the fact that we're complete mess-ups but that he died for us, if we talk about that, we'll be accused of doing wrong, we'll be, we'll be laughed at, we won't be able to get all the words in, people will mock us, they'll, they'll think we're weirdos. Maybe we could just keep going, and keep going, and keep going, serving all the time, so that they might come to know the Lord Jesus, who gave himself for us. So as we then dive into the application of this passage, do you not think submission is a good thing? Do you not think it's a beautiful thing to be called to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, to submit to a government that you think is rubbish, to submit to a master or a boss you think is awful and who's, in this case, beating you? I doubt any of us are going through that. To submit to a husband who doesn't believe what you believe and who may even be very difficult. It's a beautiful thing because you can be like the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's first look at that national Example submitting to an anti-Christian government. And that's what it was at the time. So the Caesars set themselves up as Lord, and they had a, a cult of worshipping the emperors, the dead emperors, but then in the lifetime probably of these believers, soon they said that they had to worship the live emperor as well as Lord and God. And yet Peter says, Submit yourselves, verse 13, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Even dreadful regimes God has put in place to allow some order. And we can see that when there is no government at all, society just breaks apart and you get things like ISIS. Do you see how this desire for the people to submit is hugely subversive. It's actually a very terrifying thing to um, a totalitarian regime. Submit, yes, but for whose sake? For the Lord's sake. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is a higher authority. And we submit to the governors over us because of him. Their creator and judge. The, the term, uh, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, it's not human authority, actually. The word is human creature. Human creation. It's just a reminder. They are made by God. They're just a creature. You don't need to fear them. No, it's the Lord you fear in that wonderful, freeing sense so you don't need to fear anyone else. It utterly undermines their desire to control because we don't fear them. See amazing examples of that like in, in the book of Daniel where um, those three guys, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were forced to bow down to a statue and told they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. They've been such good citizens up until that point. We're told about how well they behave and how much they're willing to serve and to, to be involved in the university system and serve the, 
the, the Babylonian system, and then they're told to bow down before something that is not God. And they say no, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Because they don't fear the emperor. They don't fear the king, they fear God. And that troubles and undermines the system. And verse 15, for it is God's will, but that, that by doing good, you see how subversive this is, how it undermines the system? You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. There's a reason for doing good in your submission. It has a purpose. It undermines the accusation that being different makes us bad citizens. You see that in all kinds of different areas. I just think of the very simple, not particularly suffering area that I had when I um, started trusting in Christ in my teenage years and my parents thought I joined a cult and was a total weird wacko. And, and my uh, mother said to me when I was about 20, she, said, um, she came out of her room in her dressing gown, she came to me because I told her I wanted to go into the missionary and possibly, uh, to, to ministry and possibly to the mission field. And she said, Alexander, I don't know what's happened to you. I'm so worried about you. I'm so worried about you. And then five years later, I was sitting having a conversation with her. Um, my dad had been ill and had um, made her ask more questions. She'd been looking into the gospel. But she'd also seen me live life and all my friends live life and all her friends' children live life. And she said, you know what? I am so grateful that you've been given all the things that I ever would have wanted to teach you but never knew how. It's not, I didn't get through much suffering. I mean, it's very painful to hear your mother tell you that she's so worried. But you see, she, she accused me of doing wrong. She thought I'd gone weird. And then she saw, actually, no, this, this kind of life, this is wonderful, this is transformative. And she herself is trusting in Christ as well. It has a purpose. It has a purpose. Because of time, I'm not going to read you a little quote from a guy called Aristides writing to Emperor Hadrian, but I'll just summarise it for you. He basically summarises how good the Christians are and how that has led him to think Jesus is worth it and therefore that Hadrian should stop persecuting. Uh, This was in uh, about 120, 130 AD. Verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. You are free people, whatever your circumstances. God has freed you to live a life for him. The only true freedom, true liberty, means the freedom to do what is right. The Bible says that those who sin, those who turn away from God, are like those who are cut off from him, like a a branch is cut off from a tree. And so they are slaves to sin. They can only get further away from God. They can only deteriorate, just like cut flowers in a vase. They might look beautiful for a time, but they can only deteriorate. And to that extent, they are slaves to death. But when you trust in Christ, you've been put back into him, the source of life. You're now part of the tree again, able to flourish and flower again and again and again. You're truly free. But don't use that freedom as a cover-up freedom. Remember, you're God's slaves. You know, it's awful to be a slave to death. It's a beautiful thing to be a slave to God. There's no one, I, you want to be a slave to God. He owns you. He controls you. He dictates your future. What a wonderful thing. What security. You don't want to be a slave to another human being. That's not a great thing. And Paul says elsewhere, if you can get your freedom, go for it. 
True liberty means there's freedom to do what is right, and that's there in verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Respect, that's um, see the value, the worth of everyone. Everyone's made in the image of God. They have a huge value. Have a love and concern for them in that sense. But then with your Christian family, the word love there isn't just our word love. It's the word to self-sacrificially love. Love like Jesus loved. Lay down your life for your Christian family. Fear God. He's the only one you need to fear. While honouring the government. God is the ultimate authority. Now I think this idea that we get coming back and again and again, um, in verse 12, the idea of being accused of doing wrong and then uh, people seeing our good deeds and then here silencing the talk of ignorant people. It's that idea of people assuming that as Christians we're a bunch of weirdos. And if you speak out about how Jesus is wonderful, the, the biggest thing that will make us weirdos, which is the uniform that we probably take off the most, is just talking about the fact that we're Christians and that is absolutely wonderful. We, we just shut up because the religion of today is anything goes, nothing really matters. So the reason we're quiet in the face of that is because if anything goes, what, what right do you have to tell me what to believe? That's the reason we're quiet in the face of that religion. That is the God of this age says, anything goes, whatever you believe, whatever you want to do, you head for it. You know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, everyone called themselves a Christian. So to talk about being a Christian was a bit weird because everyone called themselves a Christian. And so the weirdness was being distinctively trusting in Christ and living for him and so on. Today, just talking about the privileges of being a Christian is the weird thing, and they want you to shut up. And, and why should you share that with me? And, 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 and why should I believe what you believe? What, you know, it doesn't matter whether you believe Jesus is God or not. And so we quieten up. And so we hide. And you know what we've become like? Well, I've, I've been uh, reading a book by Tim Keller, and he makes this very good insight. And some of you who were there on the weekend away back in October would have uh, read this. He says that Christians are like gay people were 40 years ago. Let me just read you a little extract from what he says. 40 years ago, most of us knew gay people. But we didn't know we did because everyone was carefully quiet about it. As a result, you could still believe stereotypes about them. Today, culture has changed. As a result, almost all younger people know somebody who's gay. And they realise that they're ordinary, and in many, case, ad, many cases, admirable people. And therefore, they cannot believe stereotypes or blanket negative statements about them anymore. Most sceptics I talk to, Tim Keller says, probably do have Christian friends, but they don't know about it. Christians are like many gay people were 40 years ago. They hide it. Basically, there are all sorts of wonderful Christians, but most sceptics don't know them. And what they need more than an argument is to observe an intelligent, admirable human being and see that a big part of what makes them the way they are is their trust in Christ. Having a Christian friend you admire makes the faith more credible. So we should speak out. And if we speak out, we will suffer. We will suffer. And the reason we don't suffer is because we don't speak out. I think that's pretty much the only way that you do suffer in this world. Because the one thing we believe is shut up about your views. 
because everyone's entitled to their own opinions. And we don't believe that. We believe if you're entitled to your own opinion rather than God's opinion, then you're on your way to hell because you're like a branch that's been cut off from the tree and your only trajectory is death. And that is horribly bad news. And so the kindest possible thing we can do for people is to talk about what it means to have an identity that is rooted back in Christ, that we deserve nothing but he's given us everything. But not only do we need to talk about that, they need to see it lived out in practice. They need to see community in action. So that when you invite people to church, you're hoping that they hear a great talk and understand it. But normally, I, I mean, I know that in my experience over the last sort of 50 years, that's the main thing I've been thinking about. Is will this be a great talk that's not too long, that hasn't already gone to kind of nearly 40 minutes like it has now? <laughs> um, you know, and is it going to be embarrassing? And is the speaker going to be eloquent and engaging? Will there be lots of laughs? Or is everyone falling asleep? That's the main thing I used to worry about. But actually, a much bigger witness, because, and I've been struck by this, as some of our NCT friends have come to church or come to different sort of Thanksgiving events and so on. What they talk about is, this is a community that just cuts through anything I've seen before. I grew up going to a Catholic church, one friend says, and there's just nothing of that. The fact that they know each other, they love each other like a family. So whether or not you stay around after the service and chat to someone about the fact that you screwed up this week and that you need their prayer, you may not think that's a big contribution, but someone watching in and seeing, oh my word, they're crying over there, and that's okay. They're praying over there, and that's okay. These people who are radically different to each other have been brought together and seem to have a unity and a love for each other. You know, someone prays, and English isn't their first language, and they think it's awkward, and everyone goes, hmm, and we need a bit more of that, don't we? <laughs> and, you know... And I suppose was so wonderful. My only criticism would be just to say we more because we so agreed with you and we love you. And people see that. They see that. And they think, wow, what they believe that I thought was weird and is so against what we believe in society today. How dare they share their faith? I want that faith. I want that faith. I want that faith. And you know, the fact that they get mocked at the office, I used to think that was the right thing for them. But now I'm going to jump. And so they see something real. And then we get the workplace example. I'm going to try and go through this quickly. Slaves in reverent fear. Sorry, uh, workplace example. Submitting to an anti Christian boss. So these are extreme examples. Why would you submit in these situations? How on earth can Peter say, go with slavery? Why doesn't he say, be a revolutionary? Be a Wilberforce? Well, actually, 50% of the population at the time Peter was writing were slaves. There was absolutely no way that a very small population of Christians were going to cause revolution. But what this does, what this does, just look at verse 18. Slaves in reverent fear of God. What? You're supposed to fear your master. You undermine your master if you show that you've got something way greater. But in reverent fear of God, no, don't undermine them in the way you behave. No, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but to all, also to those who are harsh. It's hard to think of a more frightening situation than being a slave of a cruel master. Slaves could be killed, but because they were their master's property, that was okay. I think it was less bad then than it was with the kind of racist slavery of um, the 19th century, uh, 18th century. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't much better. It wasn't much better, and it could be just as bad. 
But Jesus says something extraordinary in Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't be afraid of someone who's beating you for being a Christian. Because the worst that could happen to you, what's the worst that could happen to you? You die and you're with the Lord for all eternity. And if you're, if you're a slave master there beating your slave, what's the worst that can happen to you? You die, and like those flowers, you might have flourished in certain areas, but you're only fit for the rubbish dump to be destroyed and burned. It's the word that Jesus used for hell, the rubbish dump, where the fire doesn't go out and the worm doesn't die, rotting, burning heap of despair. So in your suffering, the worst possible suffering situation in the workplace, you can rejoice because you have an opportunity to bring earth to heaven, to witness to your boss who sees, even as he's beating you, that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes you the best possible slave. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God, verse 19. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? And if you, if you got, get laid off or treated badly at work because you're just annoying or painful or you steal something or so on. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is, the word is actually grace. This is grace before God. God is giving you this situation so that you might show grace to others. It's mad, isn't it? It's absolutely mad that, that someone could be suffering this much. And Peter say it's an opportunity for witnesses, a good thing. But actually, if we're just passing through, you know, who cares whether you've got one metre squared in economy class, two metres squared in first class, no metre squared because somehow you managed to sneak into the baggage loft below. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Because this is just... This is just the vase. And either you're cut off and you're out, or you're grafted back in and you live forever in a glorious relationship with the one who you can witness to now. I think it's just worth saying that there is a danger that we voluntarily make ourselves slaves to our work, isn't it? I think that's the flip side today. We don't get real slaves today. We have amazing rights, and a lot of that is to do with the fact that the gospel has permeated this culture for centuries. I think there's a danger that we voluntarily make ourselves slaves to our work. And you know that has the opposite effect of what Peter is talking to here. Because what we say to our bosses is, even though I don't have to stay here, I so value your opinion of me, I so value my pay grade, I so value what others think about me, I so value that holiday and that bigger house, that I'm going to make myself a slave to here. And Jesus is just something I do when I can turn up on a Sunday. <laughs> let's, let's not do that. Let's, let's not make ourselves slaves voluntarily. Let's show our bosses today that actually these are our hours and we're going to do really, really well in those hours and sometimes when it's required to pull our weight a bit more we will go with it, we'll do what's expected of us. But sometimes we will forego the promotion and the salary increase and so on because our first duty is to uh, you know, if you're a guy, a wife and 
kids and to get back in time to look after them and leave them. And then our priority is to our church family. And only then is our priority to our workplace. And so it will affect the kind of job we take on. We don't want to commit ourselves to something and then break those rules. That's silly. We need to be open and honest in interview about what we can and can't do, what's the right thing to do. It requires really serious thinking. But is the Lord your priority? And do you submit as he wants you to? As I said, we weren't going to get much time to uh, go to the last bit, which is the household example, submitting to an anti-Christian husband. So again, this is a bad situation. I'm not going to delve in here, but I think there will, there will be, we're going to study this in small groups, there'll be time to delve into that there, and maybe we could even start there in small groups and make sure that we don't uh, miss out. I think the key thing, a few key things to point out here is, firstly, that these wives were to submit, not because they believed their husbands were superior to them, no, it's because they trusted God in their situations. Do you see that extraordinary word? Those extraordinary words at the beginning there? Wives in the same way. Do you see where that follows on from? Just look at the passage. In the same way as who? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what an extraordinary privilege. What status is that? These aren't doormats. These are servants of the great high God. They've been given the privilege of being like him. In their service to their husband. So that they might win him for Christ. Do you see that? Verse, uh, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit your hus- uh, yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. You know, the one place where your identity is going to be clear, if you live out the Christian life, that's going to be with your husband. You don't need to do a lot of talking in that situation. But you can a lot of witnessing, an awful lot, if you go the extra mile. And I think this applies in all kinds of household situations, you know, with flatmates and uh, you know, wherever we get thrown together intimately with others, where there's this sort of opportunity either to say, I've done my bit and no more, or to just serve and serve and serve and serve and serve and serve. And we can win people over in those situations. Do you see verse 6? Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called her Lord, so we won't go to that. But you are her daughters. If you do what is right and do not give way to fear, this is not fear of. Uh, that, that, sorry, that is fear of, uh, of the husband. Sorry, there's another fear. Um, uh, sorry, verse 2. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, that word reverence is actually fear, but it's fear of God. See, that there's, if you live out this wonderful example and show that the God is the one that you desire. And you don't need to be afraid even of a cruel husband. You can be an extraordinary witness. There are loads of implications there. Um, we'll go through the small groups. The last little bit, husbands. Now, I was kind of struggling with this because these, all these three were clear examples of, of submission in a really hard situation. Being just a subject in an anti-Christian nation, being a slave to an anti-Christian master, being a, a wife to an anti-Christian husband. And then this last bit. And I think this last bit is just to say to husbands, don't you dare, don't you dare use this as an excuse to abuse your wife if you're a Christian man. No, no, no. In the same way as the Lord Jesus served his church, be considerate. Know what your wife needs. 
That's the word is, is, is to do with knowledge. Consider it. Know what your wife needs. Don't, don't just take her for granted. Be considerate as you live with your wives. And treat them with respect. That word respect is honour their full worth. And what is their full worth? They're a child of God. They might be the weaker partner, and, and you can, we can react against that, but I think if, if 99% of husbands and wives had an arm wrestle, the husband would win. Even I probably would win. Yes, this year. And you'd see how... Let's try it. Fine, fine. So the fact is that women are physically weaker. There's no sense of any other kind of weakness here. Because they are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. That is their status and value. That is why you are to love them and care for them and think about their needs and serve them. And elsewhere we're told, lay down your life for them as Christ laid down his life for the church. And one of the key things, husbands, and I'm preaching to myself probably more than any of you, is that nothing will hinder your prayers. You know what, when I neglect Lucy, our prayer life suffers. She, more than anyone else, points out, hey, we're struggling to pray. And I know it's my responsibility to lead us in the families that. But you know, I think this goes out to all women in our church. Women are better prayers than men. Because there's that inbuilt sense of delight in the relationship with God. These are all averages, these are all generalizations. But I think that we, as men in the church, need to allow the women to just remind us again and again are we being prayerful enough? Are we being prayerful enough? Because your prayer life is where in private you will show that you really do depend and delight in the God who saved you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Show that you need him in every situation. And we need to think as a church how are we seeing our prayers hindered? Especially when we hold up, rightly I think, the differences between men and women and gender roles and so on. How are we failing to... (coughs) know the needs of the women within our congregation and allow them to speak into that situation and encourage us to be more prayerful. Transformation by submission. The ultimate example of servant-hearted submission is the Lord Jesus Christ. You are expected to suffer. So start talking about him. Stop talking about how he shapes and controls your identity. Think about how you can do that. How can you put the uniform back on so you can live it out so that when you act, people will accuse you of doing wrong, but gradually over time, they'll see your good deeds and they will join you and glorify the Lord Jesus when he returns. We've gone over time and we're going to sing again. I think the best thing to do probably would be to pray in your tables. Just pray in the light of this. Um, pray for each other if you can. Pray for yourselves. Well, why not just pray for yourself in a particular situation you're facing that you were convicted of? Who do you need to be a clearer witness to? What, what particular things touched you? Just pray around your tables for a couple of minutes and then we'll stop and have tea and we'll keep chatting about these things. <laughs>